Hello, boys and ghouls, and welcome to episode 54, all about Stephen King's immortal classic, Salem's Lot. Listen in as we discuss the novel of vampires in a small town, and the 1979 television event that it spawned, as well as a second Salem's Lot miniseries that came out a quarter century later. So, be home before dark, lock your windows, and grab a snack as we present a lot of Salem's Lot. You want to see something really scary? They come from the bowels of hell, a transformed race of walking dead. Zombies, exploding heads. Psychos, fanatics, murderers, nutcases. Now, do we all agree that what we are dealing with is vampires? I know that one of you is a werewolf. Ain't nothing but dead folks. I want to kill the undead. So you ever so talk to a corpse? Satan is our pal. It's boring. Throw the third switch! Look, the third switch is my creation! I know, I'll divert those clowns with Hostess Cupcakes. Ah. That's really great. It's just like I imagined. Alright, well, Kit. Marshall! So, uh, I just shared with you the old Hostess ads from comic books where they take a whole page to have a superhero thwart some villains with delicious Hostess pies or or cakes twinkies in particular yeah and speaking of which yeah i have right here gimme gimme a box of limited edition ghostbusters white fudge marshmallow twinkies and this comes with a picture of the stay puffed marshmallow man that looks like him i can confirm that's yep that's right there on the box i did have a, a box of the lime green slime centered I think they were like key lime flavor. Key lime. They were supposed to be, but they weren't very Maybe. limey. Not particularly. They just kind of tasted like Twinkies, which was fine by me. Mm-hmm. And you and I, I had a whole box of those, and mm-hmm. I was like, I'm going to share these with Kat. But then you and I went to Scare LA. Good people. We went to Scare LA a few weeks ago. And there For was. For a convention, Halloween convention. Yeah, emphasis on Halloween. Yeah. And there was a booth of SoCal Ghostbusters. Is that the name they go under? Yeah. Uh, no, they were the Southland chapter. Who, just to bring people over to the booth to check out what it is they do, they just had free slime Twinkies. Yep. And Ecto Cooler. And Well, you pay for the Ecto Cooler. Well, yeah. Okay. So I had been in at least one store to look I for Ecto Cooler. I forgot that we paid for it because you paid for mine. <laughs> okay. Such a gentleman. Cat got free Ecto Cooler. I did. <laughs> and I don't think I ever had it back in the day, back because right now people are like, oh, they're putting out Ecto Cooler. Right. What a treat. And yeah, it was good. But uh, it, it unfortunately wasn't nostalgic because I never really had it first time around. Yes. So we uh, together shared the experience of both trying the green variety. 
And I should also mention the Ghostbusters, the Southland Ghostbusters that we met, mm -hmm. are members of a worldwide organization of Ghostbusters. And if you want to learn more about what they do and who they are, watch Ghost Heads, which is a really fun documentary that's on Netflix. At least it, it is right now as we're recording this. And they're, it's incredibly charming. I have a friend who is a Philadelphia Ghostbuster. He and his wife both are, and he got married in his Ghostbuster outfit. Wow. That's dedication. It is. It was also a Halloween wedding, so okay. everyone was in costume. Okay. So it's not like everyone else was wearing suits. Are we ready to rip in, into these? Yep. Let's do okay, it. Okay, open them up. Yeehaw. The Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, oh. who made sort of an appearance in the new Ghostbusters film. Uh-huh. Ah, smells fudgy. It does. Like, like white chocolate. At the mm. time of this recording, I don't know if they're still even available in stores. Thanks to Twinkies being Twinkies, it just sat on my shelf for the last couple months. Yeah. Um, I'll say this. The consistency kind of reminds me of those delicious hostess like trees that I get every Christmas. I think those are Little Debbie's. Little Debbie trees that I get every Christmas. Yeah. Um, Same here. It's a sort of like, it's got sort of a veneer to it. Yes. Which... Is great on my Little Debbie trees. It's not what I want out of a Twinkie, but this is still very tasty. Now, I realize that at its heart, a lot of product tie-ins are supposed to make it kind of feel like you're one of the characters. Like, I'm going to eat this cereal just like Thor does. Mm, mm -hmm. what, what have you. I don't feel particularly closer to the Ghostbusters having eaten this. No. But I'll get over it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Busting make me feel good. All right. Well, thanks, Marshall. I don't want to give the impression that all we did was uh, go to Scarlet, have a Twinkie and an Ecto Cooler, and call it a day. <laughs> what do you have any uh, highlights you want to mention? Well, you know, as far as in the in the main hall, yeah. you've got booths full of vendors. I think what's cool about Scarlet, and I don't know how this compares to other conventions, but it was you know you and I remarked it was kind of cool to see the scare school that was going on where you could go learn how to carve tombstones out of whatever material and you know yeah. make your home haunt magical which just speaks to our total like what you and i love the most about spooky stuff is the spooky aspect the um the charm right yeah. and i was really charmed by i noticed a lot of kids this year all dressed up we saw like spooky kids with their parents yes and it was interesting you really felt the i really felt the intrusion on this year of uh immersive haunts there was quite a bit of those kinds of previews this year. There was You could see people participating in the alone experience that they were having at Scare LA where these were the people with the, the virtual oh, reality. Okay. That was alone. How yeah. the people that were just being blindfolded and walked through? and then... That was also alone. Okay. It was the same, same experience. And then the rope, which I totally chickened out of, and I was like, I'm not doing this. They were passing around a waiver, and we yeah, were like, I let's signed... go over to the blinky button zombie hunt. Yeah, we did that instead. Over in the um, other room. I signed a waiver or two in my day, but it just wasn't, it wasn't happening that day. I'm feeling it? Yeah, so I don't know. For me, um, one of the notable highlights was seeing the... Wicked Lit production that you and I popped in on, which I'm a huge fan Indeed, of what they that do. that went on for how long? Like, it was a good, a good like... good half an hour, at least. We got to see our own play. Yeah. I don't know how much of what we saw, like, I don't know if that's just the Roadshow version. Or I got like, the feeling it was, but who knows? 
but I've never been able to get out to see Wicked Lit perform. So cool. It's a theater company. If you're listening and you don't know, it's a, one of the things that happens in LA around the haunt season and it's performed in and around uh, mortuary and they adapt different classical kind of like m most of them are a bit older horror stories and you get to see three or four during your visit there and you like will travel to inside the mortuary for one of the stories and then in the graveyard for another and you're watching actors perform and it's really really immersive and cool and it just gives a feeling to it, you're not just watching I remember the year I went one of the stories was also took place in the chapel. Like we sat in the pews and watched a performance. And you just, you're moving around, you feel when you're smelling the night air or you're inside the church, it really adds just kind of another level of spook to it. Anyway, they performed. Yeah, sort of like three stories and a wraparound. Yeah. Which was really nice and, and well dressed too. You weren't just like in just a convention room. No, they had they like had trees a whole, it was and like, like a campfire, campfire and night sounds and. Yeah, well, you and I never really debriefed about that, so it sounds like you enjoyed it. I'm oh, glad you did. very much, yeah. Good. Also, I did the uh, the zombie shooting gallery. Yes, you did. That was cute. Which is just a traditional shooting gallery, which I enjoy very much. There's not a lot of those around. There's still one like Frontierland and Disneyland. Mm -hmm. And I know like the Dave & Buster's out in Arcadia has or had one. And I just like shooting stuff and then watching it like a, a guy will come out of a barrel or something and be like, Ooh. Mm -hmm. or like an owl's head will spin around or something like that. Yeah. But in this one, everything that happened was kind of spooky. It was kind of violent, actually. Well, the zombies were like, like writhing and being electrocuted and flying out at you. There was one in particular was really that was cool. in a chair. And then if you hit that particular sensor next to it, it would just kind of fly out and, gah, 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 and then like retract again for someone else to hit it. It's really it. fun to watch. Yeah. That and... Just being around um, the people. I was going to say that. You know? Yes. It's... It feels so And they get to see us there. And yeah. Not, not like, oh, it's Cat and Marshall, but it's just like, more people. Mm -hmm. More people who are into what I'm into. And we're yes. looking at them going, look at those people. They're into what I'm into. And the people over there and the people over there. I think most people who only have a passing interest and love for Halloween appreciate the communal feeling like I, i've I, we've talked about the documentary um the american scream on this podcast before which is one of my favorite documentaries it's about home haunters mm -hmm. and one of the guys articulates it so well he's like you know christmas and thanksgiving are family holidays and halloween is a community holiday you are out in the streets he's like i talk to people that i don't see ever but they're my neighbors but then once a year we are out hanging out talking outside the, this haunted house whatever and i feel like most people who don't necessarily they're not obsessed with the haunt season but who enjoy halloween soak up that communal experience without you know thinking about but for those of us who love horror and love um, spooky stuff and love halloween to be able to have more than one day a year to have a, a several days a year where you can be among your people and you know not be looked at funny like everyone's just so supportive and they're like loving your costume or you're laughing together at the giant snake or whatever it is oh my gosh yeah there was yeah not not just a animatronic snake or anything there was a reptile exhibit i want to say were, they were all rescued Exotic animals, mostly reptiles and, and bugs. The largest of which, though, I think was, I mean, some are like rescued from, you know, like they'll bust a drug dealer and he'll have exotic animals he shouldn't have. Right. Or someone who's, or, who's bought or just one like, and couldn't handle it. Yeah. The largest, though, I think used to be in movies. Yeah. Like his name was like Mo or Big Mo. That was one big snake. That was a giant 
damn snake. <laughs> I and... wish you could see Marshall's face right now. Yeah. Anywho, you got yourself a spooky cupcake. I did. It had a severed finger on top. Which you ate part of, and then you gave me the rest. Yeah. It was solid white chocolate I couldn't handle. And I was like, I can, I could feel the knuckle <laughs> of the white chocolate <laughs> finger. I just had like, an actual spine like shiver from like, that. Ugh. Against the roof of my mouth. And I chomped down. It's a confusing feeling mixing the uh, disgust with the pleasure of the white chocolate as it melts over your tongue. Yeah. And you like sought that one out. I don't know if you like saw someone else with one or you like saw a flyer. Oh, okay. I saw someone else with one and I was like, I'm going to get me one of them cupcakes. It didn't take long either. We just no. followed your nose. Yeah. Altogether great time at Scarolay. No complaints. Uh, we knew it would be good. And it was. Yeah. So uh, way to spend a Saturday. Yes, Marshall? We're doing Salem's Lot as our topic. Oh my gosh, my brain and my heart and my head and my soul are all so full of Salem's Lot right now. It's all I've been doing for weeks. The topic was chosen because of autumn. Mm -hmm. We were just trying to think of like autumny things, maybe like back to school or fall foliage. And I was like, Salem's Lot. Yeah. And you were pretty quick to agree to it. Uh, because I love the book. I've always loved the book. And you, you've read the book before. Just once before, and then I listened to the audiobook to refresh for this podcast. Okay. I'd read the book once before. First, I saw the 79 miniseries, but I watched it, like, on DVD sometime in, like, the 90s. Mm -hmm. Then I read the book, and then I watched the 2004 miniseries as it aired. Oh, cool. And now I have, for this, watched them both again and read the book again. And now they're all just kind of like alphabet soup in my head. Yeah. Spelling out funny words. I'm a little mixed up as to what happens in some of them. Yeah. Maybe between the two of us, we can actually keep everything straight. Yeah. But not necessarily. <laughs> So not everyone has heard of Salem's Lot, and not everyone, having heard of it, really knows what it is. They might just know the title. The title does not give any indicator that what it's about is vampires. No, indeed. And it's a tricky thing doing vampires, I think, in modern times. And, and when did this come out? 75? October 17th, 1975 is when the book was published. I'd like to look at just the book's use of the word vampire. Because mm -hmm. some movies will do this, too, if they want to be like, you know, it's vampires, but I want to make it real. And that's such a that's such a losing battle. But mm -hmm. some do better than others. And one of the things they do, sometimes almost as a gimmick, is you'll go the entire film and realize nobody said vampire. I know what you are. Say it. Out loud. Say it. Jonah's brother. That's right. Wait, what? But another way to do it is to set it in a world where everyone knows the pop culture touchstones of vampires. And once they start happening, they start saying like, oh, what, Christopher Lee's going to come out and bite my neck? 
Yeah. You know, something like that. That's kind of the other side of the coin, which Salem's Lot does do some. They mention Hammer Horror. Mm -hmm. And they mention Bram Stoker. But the actual use of the word vampire. Mm -hmm. First of all, you know something's up from its sort of, I'll just say, cold opening where they're on the run from something mm -hmm. and they're consulting priests, but they never say monsters even right. or vampires. And the they is the main character, Ben and Mark Petrie. Well, at first it's just tall man and boy. Right. And you learn that just because he has the same car, that the tall man is writer Ben Mears. Mm -hmm. But who the boy is, isn't immediately obvious. Right. You come to figure it out though. But sort of slowly, even as... First, the reader kind of figures out there's vampires, if not some other monster, if they didn't just read the back of the book. Mm -hmm. And depending what decade you're in, really, vampires could be refreshing as far as like, ah, good old vampire story or trite mm -hmm. with another vampire story. <clears throat> sure. I can't really say what was going on in the 70s. I know there was Dark Shadows. I know there was a Franklin Jella Dracula that was sort of coming out, not in competition with the book, but when they were going to make the book into a movie, mm -hmm. then the Franklin Jella Dracula came out, and then the Herzog Nosferatu came out, and they were like, why don't we make it a miniseries instead? Mm -hmm. And the TV event that was the, uh, the TV movie that started Night Stalker, that was about a vampire in, like, modern times. So I think vampires were doing pretty okay in the mid-70s. Mm -hmm. After we learn to disco, it's goodbye to sitting home on Saturday nights. We will be the most popular monsters in town. I think that the most important thing that Salem's Lot, at least the novel, mm -hmm. brings to this equation is trying to make vampires, like, real and grounded. Like, finding a way to make it not seem so ridiculous yeah. is tough. And I think what Salem's Lot, the novel, did and does is expertly paints this town full of people with faults and desires and needs and wants and relationships and because it, it because the vampires fall on this beautifully painted picture it feels it's to me it's just so real made all the more effective like the the surrealness of the vampires can't possibly be as effective and terrifying without that grounded With the real reality. people? Yeah. The recognizable people as totally. well? Yes. And before I get too far away from it, though, I did note, like literally note, I made notes, when they actually started using the word vampire. Mm -hmm. They used bloodsucker. They said Bram Stoker's creature, something, something like that, to reference Bram Stoker. They even said Dracula a few times. Mm -hmm. And then... When vampire would, would get mentioned, it would be in the negative. It would be in the, I don't believe there's vampires. I can't believe in vampires. You know, like, like Sue. Keeps saying. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not, I think, until around the character of Mark, the kid. Mm -hmm. The kid who's a horror fan. And you don't even really need to be a horror fan when you're a kid to believe in vampires. No, you believe in scary things. He just comes out and says, there's vampires. There's a vampire in that house. Mm -hmm. And in that way, he's the key. I mean, adults, they jabberjaw. The adults in this novel sit around and they talk and talk and talk about it. I love it. But I mean, yeah. they have to convince themselves and pull apart and go, okay, this scenario, let's just put all that aside. Could you believe this if this happened? If I were telling you that this happened, would you believe me? And Mark's just like, vampire. 
Yeah. A vampire. What, what, what does he go, like 12 hours before he gets a steak? Yeah. He's looking great. for vampires? Yeah, because he's a kid and kids haven't lost that imagination, you know? Yeah. That, that ability to just see it for what it is. He's at, how old is he supposed to be? I think he's supposed to be about 11, maybe 12. Okay, so but he's. Somewhere between 10 and 12, I think. He's only got 11 vampireless years behind him, <laughs> whereas right. the others have like 30, 40 vampireless years behind him. To tamp down the idea that it could ever be a real possibility. Yeah. The strength of the vampire is that people will not believe in him. And Stephen King, in writing Salem's Lot, was part of the, I'll just say, movement of taking vampires out of the castles. Yeah. Just so they can then be put back. So later you can watch something be like, like Bram Stoker's Dracula. Put him right back in the castle. And what a castle. You're talking about the uh, Keanu Reeves... It had other people in it. Maybe, I mean, I'm just talking about the Anthony Hopkins movie. I just love Keanu. That's all. <laughs> I know where the bastard sleeps. I brought him there. To Carfax Abbey. But at the time, the aforementioned things, Dark Shadows put him also, I believe, in New England. Mm. Night Stalker put a vampire in Las Vegas. The city that lives at night. Yeah. And Fright Night stuck him in just a, a regular creepy old house. Because Fright Night, the more we look into Salem's lot... Is, oh, sure. Is really just a boiled down Salem's Lot. Yeah. You know, you make a Ben Younger or Mark Older, mm. and instead of a whole town, it's just two houses. Yeah. The house where the one guy lives and the house where the vampire lives. And the similarities don't end there. <laughs> ben Mears has been away too long. And now at last, he's come home to Salem's Lot, a town too good to be true. What was that? Something is happening. Something terrible. Henry! Where's Ralphie? Where's your brother? Once the kid disappears, then this. You're not leaving Salem's lot, are you? I'm not leaving. Don't you understand what's happening? You? Yes, I do. It's in the Marston house. Good evening. They're, they're breeding on one another. The vampires are creating vampires. It's a geometric progression. Two times two times four times eight. There's a dead man upstairs. Stephen King, the best-selling author of Carrie and The Shining, takes you on a startling journey to Salem's Lot. Are we getting away from what the plot is? Well, I, th I don't are think we, are we really going too started far? the plot. I think we should do that now. All right. So let's get into it. Are, are we both waiting for the other one to do it? Probably. Okay. Writer Ben Mears comes back to Salem's Lot because he lived there for a few years when he was a kid. Had a very upsetting afternoon when he went into the old Marsden house. He was dared. Dared so he could become one of the bloody pirates. Yep. And there's a whole history to the Marston house. A dark, dark history. Yeah, no one goes there because there was a murder-suicide. And even before that, it was just kind of hinky. Why don't you say strange or weird? Or hinky, that has no meaning. Why don't we say hinky? He went in and swears by all of his senses that he saw old Hubie Marsden hanging from the rafters. He incredibly frightenedly like goes and opens a door. Yeah. You know, at the end of a long haul. It's an incredibly terrifying scene to read. Hubie dead for many years. Yeah. But he swears that he saw him hanging from the rafters and then he opened his eyes and looked at him. 
and that he he ran and has been haunted by this ever since. Like you would be, like anyone would be. Yeah. After having a couple of novels under his belt and becoming a widower, mm. thanks to a motorcycle accident, he returns to Salem's Lot. At first trying to rent that yeah. old creepy house, but then he finds out it's already been rented. It's already been sold. Already been sold. Who? Who, who possibly? Who would want to sell it? I mean, and he, as, he's uh, like me, but I'm a weirdo. As the realtor Crockett says, he's like, gosh, all these years, it's just been vacant. And then in, in one week, I sell it and then someone's inquiring about renting it. Like, what's going on? Now, there's plenty of talk in the book and the miniseries about that there's an evil in the house, and the evil house draws evil to it. Mm-hmm. So It's not that it's a haunted house. It's that it's an evil house. I think that's an important distinction. Or a house that has hosted evil? Yeah. I think Stephen King refers to it as being like a battery charge. They talk about it in the book. It's like a charged up piece of space. So that's made fairly, as cut and dry as you can make a concept like that, that the vampire... Barlow, Mm -hmm. we should say his name. I know your name. Barlow (laughs) is drawn to the house and subsequently the town of Salem's Lot on which it is like looming over on the hill. Yeah. But what's not gotten into quite so much is only hinted at is did it also attract Ben? Mm -hmm. And knowing more of Stephen King, if it was just Carrie and then Salem's Lot, you could say... Well, I think there might have been like an opposite pull, you know, like everything's got its opposite. Oh, sure. Pushing Ben there, to there balance it out. as like, uh, I don't know, some kind of chosen warrior. And you're like, chosen warrior? I don't know. Flash forward 40 plus years through the stand, through, I understand the kids from It were sort of chosen by the cosmos. I think mm, like one of our sure. listeners told us that mm-hmm. through other, the Dark Tower books. Sure. The notion that Stephen King would have of just kind of a chosen one, chosen by whatever's out there to do battle. It should be stated that Joss Whedon was inspired in large part by Salem's Lot for Buffy. The character of Buffy is this chosen one. She's a chosen warrior. She alone will stand against the vampires, the demons, and the forces of darkness. She's the slayer. And the similarities don't end there. (laughs) Because once things really get rolling in Salem's Lot... One of the best parts of the book, which then became one of the best parts of the movies, oft imitated, occasionally duplicated. It's the scene where young Mark is in bed and there's like that scratch scratching at the window. Are we there yet? I guess. We can be. Um, honestly. Actually, can I really quickly, because we were just talking about him seeing Hubie Marston. Stephen King, I found this incredibly chilling to read, and for some reason I never read this beforehand, but regarding that hanging body in the house, mm-hmm. Stephen King re- uh, recalled a dream he had when he was eight years old. This is such a specific... I don't think I've ever... I don't think I remember any dreams I had when I was eight, but I'm not Stephen King. Mm. In the dream, he saw the body of a hanged man dangling from the arm of a scaffold on a hill. This is a quote from Stephen King. The corpse bore a sign, Robert Burns. But when the the name of a poet? It could be. Robert Burns. But when the wind caused the corpse to turn in the air, I saw that it was my face, rotted and picked by birds, but obviously mine. And then the corpse opened its eyes and looked at me. I woke up screaming, sure that a dead face would be leaning over me in the dark. 
16 years later, I was able to use the dream as one of the central images in my novel, Salem's Lot. I just changed the name of the corpse to Hubie Marston. Now that Stephen King is Uncle Steve, how old is he now? He's 70-something. So when we read a book of his where he's getting into the goings-on and the internal workings of, like, the old town, the town drunk, the guy who served in a war and hasn't been right since, it seems more of just kind of a given. It's like, oh, well, you know, he's he's 70. He's been but around. He knows people. He, yeah. But he wrote this when he was 24. I just... Or props at Stephen King, just let's, let's pile it on, that he can give us such great, well-rounded characters as, like, the woman who runs the boarding house. When he's only lived such a short life with experiences. And these characters, to me, are some of his best-drawn characters of everything I've read. Yeah. You might be able to just sort of be like, oh, his main character's a writer because he's a writer. Right. And it's like, yeah, that's one character. And I think Ben out Mears of this... is maybe the least interesting character in this novel. Some of the tertiary characters and secondary characters are my favorites. Oh, sure. Yeah. They don't get as much page time, you know, but because you got to have the, the guy on the adventure. They're so real, even yeah. if it's only a couple pages. It's crazy. And, okay, they're all New Englanders, but it just goes over this big scope of people. Yes, you're right. To all come out of not just a guy, but a young guy. you got to keep in mind that when I published Carrie, the first book, I was like 26 years old. So a lot of the critics who dissed me back in those days are dead. <laughs> in the book, there's the Glick brothers. One is offered as a sacrifice. The other gets turned into a vampire. Yeah. So there's only one Glick brother running around yes. as a vampire. That's right. And that's the one who comes to Mark's window. Then I think it's, it's Danny. Danny Glick. Yeah. Not Ralphie. In the miniseries, first one Glick comes for his brother. And that's scary. Yeah. Then that brother comes for Mark. And both of them are just floating at the window with fog behind them. Just scritch, scritch, scratching. Not unlike what Kat did through my kitchen window while coming, <laughs> coming to You're record. You're welcome, Marshall. <laughs> and then, you know, in one, just the, it's like, come on in, buddy. Windows open and he floats in and no wires because they were on like a boom stand. They were determined not to, Toby Hooper didn't want to use wires because he was like, you can always see them. Mm -hmm. So what they did it a different way and it's pretty chilling. Open the window. Open the window, Mark. And some of it was filmed backwards. Yeah. Which you can kind of tell if you watch the fog. Mm -hmm. If you watch the kid, he's moving in a really creepy way backwards or forwards it's still creepy yep. but if you watch the fog the fog is pouring out of the window at some points which is it's unnerving. Sort of like collecting itself up yeah it's moving in a way the fog doesn't move right because it's going backwards yeah in one the brother gets his brother right that one was an invention of the miniseries. Then, which was in the book, the brother, the Glick, the only Glick, uh, the vampire Glick, not the sacrifice Glick, comes through and he's like, Let me And Mark's one of the survivors for a reason, because he's got enough going on upstairs. He's like, all right. And then he reaches over to his Aurora model kit. Collecting masks and 
assembling monsters from kits. He's always been preoccupied with them, and it's not healthy. I don't really know anybody who ever worked on Aurora models. I think that it mostly, mostly had its day before I came around. Mm -hmm. But I certainly have seen enough of them just in, like, pictures and for sale here and there. And that's the models of, like, the universal monsters, mostly. Wolfman, Dracula, Frankenstein. Aurora even encouraged its legion of monster model makers to create their own dioramas with two sets of customizing kits. The first one featured assorted skulls, bats, bones, spiders, and of course, tombstones. He had like a little um, setup with like a ghoul and a cemetery and part of the cemetery has got a cross on it. And Mark being a savvy kid who's seen all the movies, and, he and knows what to do with that cross. He's been walking around probably half convinced all this stuff's real in the first place. So he doesn't have that motive by disbelief, like you're acting, like all the adults seem to sort of walk into their own deaths because part of their brain can't convince them it's actually happening. Yeah. So quick as he can, grabs that cross off of his little uh, graveyard scene and psst, be gone! Yeah. And uh, lives to fight another day. I'd heard about this scene and seen clips of this scene out of context. I didn't actually watch the 79 miniseries in its entirety until for this podcast, but I, I was familiar with that scene. But for, for all these years, as many times as I've seen The Lost Boys, as many times as I've seen Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the, the movie, movie, yeah, I never related them to that, but they are both completely homaging this movie. Come join us, Lisa. It's so cool. You get to stay up all night drinking blood. And if you say you're a vampire, you get a free small soda at the movies. In The Lost Boys, of course, Michael is outside the window trying to get in and asking for help from his little brother as he's half vampire and he's just flying and he he's can't really control it and he's terrified. And then the Buffy movie, it's David Arquette, comes to the window of Luke, Luke Perry. Yeah. And he's like, let me in, man, I'm hungry. He's like, you're floating, man, come on! I have seen that movie and The Lost Boys a trillion times. Huge fan of both movies, and I never realized, I never thought about it. But those are completely calling back to this 79 miniseries. Yeah, that has been sort of like stuck in like the horror fan collective consciousness. Yeah, it seems like it. Since 79, not all of us were around to watch it first time around. We've grown up on its imitators mm -hmm. and its spoofers. Yeah, but I think the people who were around to watch it Man, did it stick in their psyche. Sure. Man, did that screw some kids up. I know it wasn't one night after the other, and it may have hurt it for that purpose, you know, to have that whole week in between, sure. and then just sort of life gets in the way of catching the second two hours. Yeah. But I'll bet you at school the next day. Oh, boy. Kids were like, did you see? start turning ben mears and company which includes matt burke who is an older gentleman a teacher at the high school yeah susan norton who ben has been dating who is a young philly um and mark petrie they all wind up kind of in a quartet as it were to use a stephen king term for another dark book. tower stephen king term and father callahan did as you mention well. the doctor uh and dr jimmy cody who i love i love that character Oh, 
people become sort of like convinced to varying degrees some of them take more convincing than others that there's a, a vampire problem in town and they have to figure out how to fix it the first person to really suspect is the teacher yeah and he has kind of a discussion with the best mind he can find which is ben the writer just sort of a hypothetical on evil in the town and what might be happening and then he finds the gravedigger, the one the, the, who was burying the Glick boy and became overcome with the concept that in the coffin, the Glick boy was staring at him. Yeah, this is Mike Ryerson. And yeah, he just knew in his like heart of hearts that the boy's eyes were open inside the casket. And then despite himself, it's a great part of the book and both movies do it pretty well. He just gets in and just starts like digging back out and he's like, stop staring at me. And then he opens it up. And there's the boy looking more alive than ever. And then he sits up. Dun, dun, dun. We run into Mike later in the same bar where... Yeah, and he's all dazed. Yeah. He's like, I must have fallen asleep out there. I can't really remember what happened. So Matt... He feels very sick. Matt Burke, he's like, come stay in my guest room. In the morning, we'll take you to the doctor's. But at night, he gets another visit from the Glick boy and winds Completely up... Completely petrifying. All of that is very scary. And, and yeah. Matt hears like ungodly abominable sounds coming from the room where he's got the and mirthless laughter of a child yeah. yeah and he's terrified by it and so other people start being brought into the fold like you said he talks to ben they talk to susan and mark petrie's on his own just like rogue vampire hunter before he meets up with everybody else he's just like oh yeah. i'm gonna kill the vampires sue takes a while to be convinced because mm -hmm. what reasonable person wouldn't take a while? Yeah. Honestly. But once she does become convinced, in sort of a dual, I'm going to take care of this vampire problem, slash, I'm going to disprove this vampire problem. Yeah. Sort of like both hemispheres are going at once. She approaches the Barlow home. She can't reconcile her brain for either. So she, she does bring a makeshift kind of She finds like a stake steak. by the side of the road. Yeah. But at the same time thinking, this is stupid. People are going to see me. And wonder what kind of idiocy I've gotten myself into. Along the way, she runs into young Mark, who's loaded for bear. <laughs> and then he's like, you're going to kill the vampire, right? And just... She's his, like, what? Well, his frankness, I think, still kind of gets to her. Like, yeah. I mean, no. But, but yeah. Yeah. But no. He just uses the V word. And they both go to the house together. And we have not mentioned once the character of Straker. We haven't. And I gotta tell you, this is probably the first thing that bugged me quite a bit about the 79 miniseries. And what delighted me about the 2004 miniseries. Okay. Now, I Wait, know... Let's explain who Straker is. So Straker is a gentleman who has moved to Salem's Lot ostensibly with his partner, his business partner, Barlow. In antiques. And, and they've opened an antique shop, except that Barlow is nowhere to be seen. He's out on a buying trip. Supposedly. So Straker's the face of the operation. He is. He's mm -hmm. an outsider, as is Ben. And it's hard for me to remember my feeling about him when I was first reading the novel as I just sat and listened to the voices in my head. Upon listening to the novel in audio form, the guy who read the audiobook was outrageously good. Okay. So good. 
that I mean I highly recommend. Um, There's probably more than one audiobook. It's been a lot of years. Do you want to give there a? There probably is. So let me give look, the reader's name. Yeah, let me look this up. One of the best readings of a Stephen King story on audiobook, for me, was Rob Lowe. Really? Reading, I can't remember the name of it. It's like so-and-so's Cadillac from Nightmares and Dreamscapes. Mm-hmm. About the guy who digs the hole to trap the gangster. Yeah. In his whole car. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Rob Lowe read that one, huh? Okay. So Salem's Lot, I listened to the audiobook read by Ron McClarty. Okay. Really, really great voice, but what it did was set me up for a striker that I most decidedly didn't get in the 79 version, which was a, he gave him an accent that was like vaguely Transylvanian, but not silly. And he was so skillful and appealing to your deepest, darkest needs and secrets and feelings and wants and desires, very needful things. Okay. He was so slick and so in control and so frightening in that way like a snake that just like might strike but you don't know you you kind of trust anyway for some reason so when i reached the 79 or version james mason's nervous nelly of a striker yes and i knew that you would school me on all this so i didn't bother to go investigate <laughs> who all these people are in the 79 version Everywhere I read, by the way, and all the reviews that I saw people do and talk about in the 79 miniseries, everyone's like, James Mason! Well, by the time... I don't by know 79. who that is, and I'm sorry if you're listening and it upsets you, but I don't know who that is, and his portrayal of Straker, maybe it was the direction from Toby Hooper, I don't know, but it drove me insane because he's just this, like, bumbling, scared guy. And I don't get it. He's supposed to be like his harbinger. He's like Barlow's familiar. He's, well, he, he's supposed to be protecting him. He shouldn't. He, why is he? Is he putting? Maybe he's putting on a ruse so that people aren't afraid. I, I don't think so. And he trust him. changes. I think his demeanor though once Barlow is actually in town, until he has kind safely of. gotten his master into the Marsden house. Mm -hmm. He's running solo until the crate can be delivered. And if you didn't like the James Mason. Who, um, I guess, watched North by Northwest. Okay. Apparently, the only performance that'll satisfy you is when I play dead. In your very next role, you'll be quite convincing, I assure you. You'll hear his voice imitated often. Okay. Once you get to know that James Mason voice. And he did a great, I mean, like, his acting was good. It's just I didn't like the way the character was portrayed. Sure. No ragging on him. I feel, well, compare him just sort of looking over his shoulder pre-Barlow arrival. To, like, when him and Barlow are both in, like, the kitchen together threatening Father Callahan. Yeah. Then he's, like, a cool customer because... He's still just he's not... He's got his... He's it's not it's my me striker. and my monster. Yeah. He's just not my striker. Not even in that... That scene feels clunky to me. Anyway, that was a big hitch for me. Whereas in the 2004 version, Donald Sutherland, to me, was... Not the striker that I loved from the audiobook and the way that Ron McClarty portrayed him and whoever was directing him, they took him in that direction. Mm -hmm. He wasn't that, Donald Sutherland wasn't that, but he was just so slick and he was like, he's the guy with his hand up Mona Lisa's dress. He's kind of, and he's so kooky and you never know what the hell Donald Sutherland's gonna do in a yeah. scene. He's just so unpredictably scary, but also like charming. And to me, I was like, well, there you go. It's a choice. I mean, it's not exactly what I imagined from the audiobook and from reading it, but it was a character choice I could get behind.
So we were talking about Mark and Sue go up to the house. He's like ready to kill a vampire. She's ready to maybe kill a vampire if she has to, or maybe hopefully just prove that these are just, this is just a nice old man up in this house. And in all versions, by the way, uh -huh. like, like, like there's variants all over, but every version has this coupling yeah. of Mark and Sue vampire hunters. Yeah. The unlikely duo. Right. And what I think is so interesting about the novel and both of the miniseries, miniseries just shy away from understandably, but how dark Stephen King gets in his subject matter in his books and how some of it will just never, you can't ever portray what he says in a book. Like, for example, of course, Sue and Mark get, they get caught. Straker mm. finds them and Susan gets captured and Mark gets captured and they're in separate places. She's in the basement and he's in one of the bedrooms and Straker is threatening and saying, and he's wrapped, he's hogtied him and also wrapped a uh, rope like around his testicles, like such that if he moves too much, it'll give him the good squeeze. And he's like, I'll bring you in to the fold castratum. <laughs> like he's, he's like, I'm going to cut your balls off kid. And it sounds kind of silly to explain it, but it's in the book. It is, that is the deepest, darkest of horrors, you know? And of course they don't go there in the 79 version. They don't go in no. there in the 2004. They will never go there. I don't care how many iterations they, but I think it's important to note, like, you know, people get so irritated by the um, Twilight, and I'm a fan of that. I, the books were fun. The movies, like, get over yourselves. It's fun. Um, but... A lot of people, there's a lot of like anger in the horror community, of course, about the Twilight vampires. Like, oh, they sparkle and they're all pretty emo boys, whatever. Uh, vampires are supposed to be vicious. If you're looking for vicious vampires who want to tear you apart, mm. vicious, evil creatures, look no further than Salem's Lot. These are people who are going to bind and gag an 11-year-old boy and cut his balls off. Yeah. I'm just saying, like, to well, his, that, just And that, that brings credit, us to... The two Barlows. The three, really. Mm, yes. Book, miniseries one, miniseries two. Yeah. In the book, he's probably the closest to Dracula. Yeah. In dress and demeanor. Totally. He's a cultured man of the world. He looks yeah. like a person. And he talks sort of just a little too flowery. Yeah. I think. My favorite of the three, I, I respect all three. My favorite of the three is Rutger Hauer. Me too. In the 2004, where he is charming like the one in the book is supposed to be yeah but if you ask me again just a little too ha ha, ha splendid sure I, i'll give you that a little too many 50 cent words and yeah. because when we meet him he's talking to dud dud the guy who works and lives at the dump yeah he's there after closing time he's, with the fires in the book he's in the fires in the 2004 he's spray painting the word jerk yeah on his former best friend's backhoe and that's when Rutger Hauer appears and they, they have a talk. And like, for some reason, my favorite part that I remembered for a decade is when he goes like, yeah, you think I should wash this off? And Barlow just goes, nah, <laughs> he's not old world charming. He's like, man, I'm here to be your friend. Yeah. I understand. I get it. Yeah. And he doesn't talk over his head with a bunch of huge words and he doesn't condescend him particularly. He's there to be his friend. Yep. Let me ask you something. Does it hurt? Like being a hunchback? Does, yeah. it, does it bother you? Yeah. He's like, no, nah, I'm good at work. But does it bother you? Yeah. Like, you know, He's like, with, with people, the girls. With He's the like, girls. He's like, uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, tell you what. I'm going to fix things. 
Because I'm a vampire. Yeah. And Rutger Hauer, you know, I know he's been a lot of things to many people. He's been around for a long time. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. In my research, I saw he was Ben Helsing in Dario Argento's Dracula. But to me, Rutger Hauer was Lothos, the head vampire in, I know this keeps coming up, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the movie. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, I think it's perfect. And here's the thing. A lot of people think that Buffy the movie is hot garbage. And I think it's spectacular. Rutger Hauer is an incredible head vampire in Buffy the movie. If you've never seen it, it's worth a watch for him as well as a lot of other reasons. But he's he is incredible. And I loved him in this movie. And I could have used more of him. We are dealing with uh, the undead vampire. Nosferatu. The guy who plays Barlow in the 79 was Reggie, I want to say Nalder, Nalder, mm-hmm. N-A-L-D-E-R. He was uncredited, which I believe makes him kind of scarier, just kind of like Boris Karloff was uncredited as the monster in the first Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. I looked him up. Long career. He also played Van Helsing. What? The year before in a rated X oh, movie boy. called Dracula Sucks. Whoa. My penis hurts a little. Let me see those nasty bite marks. Okay. <laughs> but rated X in the like 70s was different from rated X now. Yeah, but it was rated X for the same reason they'd rate something X now. Sexy. He was under a lot of makeup. We haven't mentioned it yet. The Barlow in the 79 didn't speak. He was more of a Nosferatu. Really terrifying. Fangs always out. Yeah. Bald head. Yellow eyes, blue skin. Yeah, now this guy, Reggie, in real life had burns on like the lower part of his face, like his chin, his his mouth area, not his lips, but definitely like, like chin and kind of around that area okay. were burned and scarred. And this gave him like this great character look. He was in Hitchcock's The Man Who Knew Too Much. Mm. It was like a bad guy. He wasn't only just in Dracula porno. That's just the funniest thing I happen to see. <laughs> yes, indeed. He had a, a pretty good career playing like spooky thugs, I want to say. Mm-hmm. And in this one, they used the burns. They kind of incorporated it into the overall look of this particular Barlow. It's an incredibly terrifying look. And an interesting direction to go. I think once you have James Mason, who is, albeit a little more... Uh, of a nervous Nelly than you would have liked for this version. Mm-hmm. He's also, he's a continental man. Mm-hmm. He always plays a well-read, suave kind of fellow. Thunderbird has an unusual flavor all its own. Not quite like anything I've ever tasted. I suggest that you try Thunderbird. It's really delightful. So to put two of those in one movie would have been overkill i would argue that in the 2004 movie it kind of is i mean you notice they don't have any scenes together they don't and they're they're so similar in many ways i mean they really they're the characters are certainly different but just even the way that they're drawn in the book i can understand in the 79 version feeling the need to differentiate and just really make barlow something else entirely you got got the suave face of the operation and then you got the monster the gnarled hideous beast yeah yeah you can do nothing against the master Stop, holy man! We've cut the boy's throat. Back, back, holy man, back, shaman! Back, priest! In the book, they go to the Marsden house 
and he's not there. But instead, what's in the coffin oh, is Sue. It's heartbreaking. In the miniseries, though, justifiably, the showdown is there in the Marsden house. Mm-hmm. And the Marsden house, have we even said it was directed by Toby Hooper? We've mentioned it a couple times. Toby Hooper! Yeah. Toby, Texas Chainsaw Massacre Hooper. And in the ha- in the house, there's a lot of taxidermy. Lots so, of taxidermy. Uh, to me, I was like, that's very Toby Hooper. There's that great... I, I can't help but think that some things were just stuff he wanted to do for Texas Chainsaw, but didn't. Or maybe after it was in the can, he, he was like, oh, that would have been great. Someday. Because there's a part where really for no reason, Mark's walking around, he opens up a drawer, and you're like, what is happening in this drawer? It's full of taxidermy animal eyes. Mm-hmm. So not actual animal eyes, but like the Options fake... Options for putting in your animals yeah, when you various sizes. Them. Yeah. For all your animal taxidermy eye yeah. needs. Of course, there's like deer head and like antelopes. And across one is like a dead dog. Yeah. And then across another is a dog skeleton, but like still intact. So did, did, was that purpose? Anyway. Yeah. It's like, boy, that's a story. It's an interesting touch. And and not an obvious one. It's not like where the action is. You have to really just kind of start looking around. Yeah. While like they're going up a staircase, you start staring what's on the walls. Speaking of Fright Night, man, the layout of the house in Fright Night is right out of. Yeah. Right out of the 79 Salem's Lot. The death of the doctor, who, for the purposes of the miniseries, is also Sue's father. Um, hated that combination. I love Jimmy Cody. Jimmy Cody got a lot more well-rounded also in the 2004 than he was, in my opinion, even in the book. No, definitely. You're right. But in the 79, James Mason comes out. You never know. It's just like, it's just like Fright Night with like his, what was it? There was Jerry and then there was his buddy. Yeah who you're like is he a vampire is he a ghoul he seems to have super strength because james mason just comes out and just picks this guy up and mason was like 70 when he did this yeah and just walks him over to a bunch of antlers and by this point in my life when i'd seen this i had seen the lost boys a about times. on yeah so you're like it's a, that's what i, that I would have said 100 experience. closer to a million that was my experience seeing it i was i'm with you and he just puts him on the i was like lost boys kill wait no no, what? this came before the Lost Boys. <laughs> Get out of town. Yeah. And so when the Lost Boys came out, there must have been like a section of people going, yeah, I see what you did there. Right. So if the Marsden house is given all of this importance, because it's like if the story is about the town, then why not make one house a character? Yeah, it certainly is. So the idea of having the grand finale, the grand showdown right there in that Marsden house right. to defeat the vampire and defeat the house. Yeah. And the old one, too, is a very welcome change sense. from the book. Yeah, makes perfect sense. Because in the book, they figure out that Barlow is hiding slash sleeping in the basement of Eva Miller's boarding house where Ben Where Ben's been living. Living, yeah. It's like, he's in the basement of my own place? Yeah, it, it makes so much more sense for the original miniseries to change that. And the clue that they had, in the 2004, it's, he notices that Barlow got some kind of chalk on Mark. That's the same in the book. In the book, well, in the... Ish. In the 2004, they realize it's drywall. Mm-hmm. And that, like, ah, oh, Eva's boarding house. That was re- kind of a silly moment in the re- 2004 movie. I think it's even sillier in the book because... Yeah. It's blue chalk, and they start thinking, oh, it must be the school. And then someone goes, it's a pool table. 13 off the side, off two rails, and a kiss off the six. And it's like, okay, but now we're implying, because he wasn't sleeping on the pool table, he's in, like, the fruit cellar, like, the separate portion, or root cellar, even. Yeah. So, if he wasn't sleeping on the pool table, 
He was just uh, shooting a little stick. Right. Or brushing past. Or in, in his own time. He, yeah. He was like, uh, hey, minion, get over here. Nine ball. Dollar <laughs> <these> game. <laughs> Best of seven. Oh, God. Yeah, it's silly. But it does lead them to the boarding house where the poor sweet doctor... Depends what version you see. Oh, man. Sorry, I was just having a flashback to the 2004 version. What happens to him there? Yeah. Bunch of knives set up in one, just sort of like in plywood, which makes more sense because it doesn't make noise. Mm-hmm. But they, what do vampires need with stairs? So they cut out the stairs after like the second step. Yeah. So you're just walking down in the darkness and you're like, one, two, oh my God. And one he lands on knives and the other one he just lands on a circular saw that's already running. Oops. really fun detail so in the book there is a whole bit with dud at the dump and how he loves to stand out there light the fires and watch the rats kind of get driven out of their holes and then he shoots them mm-hmm. that's like a, a whole scene in the book and it's just very descriptive about these rats and stephen king has said like people ask me like did you just forget about the rats because they figured from that setup earlier in the novel that later there'd be some rat action and originally there was so originally really? when jimmy cody uh well it was cut out before it was ever published because I, I think publishers... th- there's a bit i wrote a note that says like they went to the dump and there's no rats originally he had written a scene where when jimmy cody goes into the basement the rats have all gathered there and they climb up him and they start eating him alive and crawling in and out of his mouth and chewing on his face. And his publishers gross. made him take it out because they thought it was too gross. And he was like, eh, they're probably right. I'm going to write so Graveyard Shift. Knives. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So then he was like, all right, well, we'll make it. He falls onto, you know, a, a bunch of knives, which is pretty gross to me, but whatever. Sure. Because they have to kill him before the sun goes down, he never makes it out of the coffin. Because if he even made it a little bit out of the coffin, they'd both be dead at the end. Yeah. So they never did. In the 79, that old Nosferatu stand straight up. Oh, man. In the coffin. That even if you've never seen Nosferatu, you've seen that image. Yeah. I was waiting on that moment. I watched Nosferatu before I reread the book and before I watched the miniseries. Just because I'd never seen it. I was like, good excuse as any. And that, I was waiting on that scene, and it was, it did not disappoint. Such a good movie. And Nosferatu, when he comes up. Yeah, when he raises up. Does that vertical lift. So creepy. Never, just logistically, I guess, couldn't have it. Yeah. In the miniseries. Not in that scene, anyways. No. And the 2004, we're going up to the ending here. Yeah has something that the 79 really should have had, which is, what is the town like? Because it takes all this time. It is a miniseries. And they're establishing the town and the different people of the town. And what the 2004 gives you is a look at the town once it becomes more vampire than than people. And it's like zombies. Yeah, well, their leader just got killed. Yeah. And now they're just kind of walking around. What do we do? I rather enjoyed seeing that. And then they go to the dump and you see all of the vampires like just hunting for rats and all the townsfolk trying to eat rats. Yeah. And that's not in the book either, but that just sort of tells you all you need to know about like, well, here's where Salem's lot is now. 
Right. Everyone's running around eating rats. The town died. Basically the end. Postscript, it's bookended with um, the notion that Ben and Mark have managed over the last couple years to kill off all the vampires. Mm -hmm. The fire took care of most of them, probably. And now the last one is Father Callahan. Father Callahan, who never went full vampire, but was made as a replacement Straker. Basically, after Straker dies, he's not bitten, but rather forced to drink. Yeah. In the book, he hops on a bus and won't be seen again. Until a future Stephen King book brings him back. Which, yeah. which one is it? Is it the Wolves, uh, of... Wolves of Akala? And then he's in Song of Susanna. And then he's in the seventh book, The Dark Tower. And he basically, his continuation of his history is that he, he becomes kind of a vampire hunter. And he kind of categorizes them in his mind for, there's like type one, type two, type three vampires. And depending on what their abilities are and their strengths and everything. And he, he goes around killing them and in a way gains his redemption. That way he meets Roland and the gang on their quest for the Dark Tower. He regains he, his faith. In the 2004, he's just working in a soup kitchen. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't know what he gets up to at nights. Yeah. But he seems to have left Salem's Lot pretty far behind. And Ben catches up with him. And they both fall out a window together. And the whole movie is Rob Lowe as Ben telling his story to an orderly. Yeah. Might I say, I think James Cromwell is stellar Father Callahan. Sure. I can't envision anyone else as that character. It's incredible. And it breaks my heart into a million pieces what they did to him in the 79 version. He's just some dude. It's just some dude who's just killed. He's like just kind of a... He's young. He's not a silver fox. He's not... You know, he's just... He's not carrying the weight of his yeah. own faith. Now, you know, both miniseries took liberties with characters and changed things around. I just... I get I don't know. I guess for some reason the things that happened to the care and I'm not just a book loyalist. Like I'm happy with people changing things around. But it felt to me like all the change arounds in the 2004 version felt very purposeful. Like you said they expanded the Dr. Cody character and I was like, "Oh cool, I get it. It kind of gives you a more deep understanding of the darkness of the town because of the stuff he gets up to." But in the in the original 79 miniseries, I was just Oh, they good go, go we never mentioned Weasel and Eva. Yeah. And, yeah, and that oh, relationship. I love that, the way that storyline goes in the 2004 version. So cool. Yeah, Eva Miller runs, well, she's Eva like Bonnier or something in the 2004. They make her French. But again, that is a change. I was, when the she scene... first introduced herself, I was like, why would they need to change her last name? That's so dumb. But then you realize it's so purposeful because they had to make it so that she could have a history with the house, mm -hmm. with Hubie Marston, with translating some evil letters into French for him. When she was and a girl. She's feeling guilty about it. God, it's just so good. And then there's that great bit. She's waiting. She decides to marry the, oh. the guy who just kind of like. So good. Used to be her lover. Yeah. Then just kind of lost himself in the bottle. But is. Coming back again and has that great scene with Father Callahan where he's like, I want you to marry us. And by the way, Father Callahan, you're f seeming pretty chipper. And he's like, I found me a purpose, which is like, I'm going to be Father Callahan Vampire Hunter. Yeah. And both of these guys are kind of luscious and they're like, should we drink to it? And then they both go, let's not. But they're also doomed. Yeah. And Weasel, a.k.a. Ed is already a vampire, and he goes to the church where his beloved is waiting for him in a veil, and he's like, Eva, I can't come into the church. You've got to come to me. She's like, are you different, Ed? He's like, yeah, I'm different, but it's pretty good. 
Yeah. It's different, but it's the same. It's great. And you can be with me forever. And we've seen this a few times, but it's always just like the suave European man and his virginal object of his affection being like, we can be together forever. Instead of the old boarding house matron and the... There's, the there's got to be a good and the, and the town drunk, who's managed to get it together enough to finally be with the woman he loves, and is now a vampire. That was a storyline I really loved. Now you texted me, mm-hmm. like while watching the 2004. Yeah. And you were just like, "It's so good," yeah. and I can't help but think like that's one of the parts that Definitely. for you, like Definitely. you'd read the book, yeah, and then you reread the book, and then you listened to the book, and then you watched the 79. And you probably thought that Salem's Lot held no more surprises for you. Sure, I did. And yeah. then you popped in that 2004 TNT. Yeah. Rob Lowe. Who would have thought? And I think that's the thing. Not I don't mean to rag so much on the 79 version. It just hit me in all the wrong ways. And I, it's not about it being dated, which it is. Um, I think it suffers a little for that. But I've watched plenty of movies from 1979 and earlier that are engrossing you know, it, it's not it's not about that. It, for me, it was the removal and combination of certain characters. There's a seedy kind of kookiness that is very Toby Hooper that, to me, isn't Salem's Lot the book, and it isn't Stephen King. Stephen King, especially the Salem's Lot the book, we've talked about the darkness of the town and the characters. The town knew darkness. There's nothing very dark to me about the 79 version. It's kind of like the lighting isn't... I, there's nothing about the way it looks that really screams. There's nothing about Fred lot. Willard's outfits. No, I wrote down his suits. Um, insane. But to me, the 2004 version is just so moody and beautiful. And I, I won't say I think Rob Lowe is incredible, but I think he's a better he's a better Ben Mears I think than uh, David Soul to me. But I think the way the 2004 version looks, they really weave these characters together flesh them out completely before they start interacting all the to me all the relationships kind of follow it makes sense you meet mark on the school bus there's a whole it's all painted there are scenes from the book that uh didn't make it into the 79 version mm-hmm. like the school like bus the school with the bus kids, oh my god which is terrifying and they they add that into the 2004 take out all the school feels. bus parts and put them back to back and they could be like a great short story yes absolutely absolutely yeah, so I mean, for me, the 2004 version is just, if we're talking tonally, if we're talking adherence to the original, which shouldn't necessarily mean that that means it has merit, just because it sticks to the book in more ways, doesn't necessarily mean it's better. But for me, that that's important. And the I think the voiceover that exists in the 2004 version helps a lot to create yeah. the atmosphere. That sort of tapers off. It does. And when it starts back up, that's how you know that it was the beginning of the second episode. Yeah, totally. So I yeah, I really liked it. Here's why the 79 for me. And it's part of why we're doing this one in the first place. Because we're here in LA by choice. We both moved here. And one of the things we've given up is autumns. Mm. September is the hottest month of the year it's in Los Angeles. It's stupid hot. Oh my gosh. So, so hot. Um, <laughs> once things cool down, 
it's fine. And sometimes I can even smell a little smoke in the air that someone's got a chimney going and it's just fantastic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I do enjoy the mild winters, but you'll get a few leaves falling enough to kind of go crunch, crunch, crunch. But the trees changing colors, the falling, the getting cold as the nights get longer. We wanted something autumny mm-hmm. to really just bathe ourselves in for a few weeks. And that's why we went for Salem's Lot. No one really does autumn better than New England. No, indeed. Now, the 79 was actually filmed in California. The 2004 was filmed in Australia, of yep. all places, yep. whose seasons are the reverse of ours. So I guess it was sometime in like June, July, because there was snow on the ground. Snow. So they didn't really have autumn either. Theirs was just sort of the dead trees, which worked for them. Yeah. But neither really gave me autumn. But the 79 more, because autumn to me, I love the nature. Not just autumn, but October. Like the book takes place in October specifically. Yeah. Which is lovely. There's the outside, which I've just described. But then there's the inside. And the insides of autumn are just as important. Mm. The warming of your cheeks as you come indoors. You know, I've, I've themed these little sessions we have with food sometimes. Uh, I had We had Chinese food before uh, we did the Lost Boys. They were only noodles. And I, I gave you a, a Chinese food carton full of gummy worms. Mm-hmm. You know, fun. Hey, guys, I like to have fun. Yeah. If I were to have food-themed this one, if you didn't drink your dinner out of one of those Soylent yeah. <laughs> bottles. Yeah. <laughs> It would be grilled cheese and soup. Oh, yeah. Warm soup. Yeah, yeah. And Tomato soup. Being inside, and this is a story where there's nothing safer than your own house. Yeah. If you can get into the house and you don't invite the vampires in, <laughs> that's the caveat, then everything is safe in your house. And television. This is a TV movie from the days... When there was only about three channels. And I didn't come up on the 79 version. But I certainly came up on plenty of um, TV events. TV movies. The ABC Friday Night Movie. Mm-hmm. The Wonderful World of Disney. Presents. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And autumn to me. In addition to the changing of the leaves. In addition to the safety of the home. That's when TV steps it up. And we've gotten away from that. Still, the new shows come out in the fall, but we've got every conveyance to get TV shows to us when we want to watch it. Mm-hmm. There's no more, you got to watch it, or at least tape it. That's kind of when I came up. The urgency has gone out of television. It can go through all of its seasons and end, and you're still not worried, because you can just catch it on uh, Netflix or what, what have you. Yeah. But the tropes... Of a TV movie says autumn to me as much as about anything else. (laughs) So um, that's why the 79. You've charmed me. And one small detail of that, just that, you know how from time to time they would sort of throw it a commercial by having a vampire attack, but all you'd see is the hand and then they'd freeze and then they'd do like an optical zoom in. It wasn't a real zoom, like no one was pressing zoom on the camera, but they were just zooming in on the film itself, on the frozen picture. That was like an old aunt I hadn't seen in years. Coming to visit. Cute. (sighs) 
This is CBS. Okay, Kat. Salem's Lot. Yeah. You had a bit of trouble finding copies to watch. Yeah, well, so, you know, I'm, I always go for digital, and I couldn't find either streaming. So yeah, I had to so buy them. Right now, good listeners, it doesn't sound like it's the most accessible. Eh, just go on Amazon, like I did. Okay. You can find them if you want to buy them. I just wanted to, like, easily press a button and have it delivered to my eyeballs, and I couldn't do that this time. And I did go to one library, and then I was like, screw it, I'll just buy them. I went to my public library, I found both, and the book. Even though I already owned a copy of the book, because... God, here we are. Once at a library sale, I take full advantage of my public libraries. Yes, you do. They'd reach, like, the last day of, like, the used book sale, and they were like, fill up a paper grocery bag, and it's a dollar. So I just shoved a whole lot of books in there, and I was like, Salem's Lot, never read it, throw it in. Maybe a year later, I pick it up, and I say, now's the time. I get about a page into it, and... Someone wrote in my book. Yeah. For Janet, with best, <gasps> Stephen King. What? Nine nine seventy nine. Oh my God! Give me that. Are you kidding me? Nope. So I have an autographed Stephen King book, and if there's any value in it being <gasps> like better the older it is, <gasps> this one's from he dated it. He did. It's seventy nine, September 9th. Oh my God. To someone named Janet. I was just like listening to you and pulling up the thing I wanted to say next. And then I just glanced over and I saw that signature that I know so well. <gasps> yeah, I, I went online. I and feel where the pen pressed into the paper. I went and compared it to others online and that's his signature. So this was uh, like. How cool. The year of the miniseries, the first one. I guess Janet didn't care too much about Stephen King. Perhaps she's no longer with us. Damn it, Janet. <laughs> so I opened it up and I was like, time to read it. Got to that page and went, time to check it out of the library. Because I'm not going to dog ear this copy any more than it already is. Yeah. So this one stays in plastic. That's so cool. You played that close to the hip for a long time. I didn't know about that. That's cool. Surprise. Yeah. So folks, it's out there. The book's out there. The movies are out there. You might have to do a little more hunting than what we normally talk about. Uh, those you might you're often able to just find them on youtube i love it when we took and talk about a movie where you can just find it on youtube yeah but you know what everybody it's out there and i like to think this is a good time of year for it uh this drops mid-september yeah in lots of places the air is growing chilly and the leaves are turning colors and there's some beautiful fall descriptive writing in the novel. Like yeah. Just describing the town and the seasons changing and stuff. It really, really makes you feel some kind of way. They'll just take some time off and just talk about, they'll talk about darkness. They'll talk about fall. And there's even a little bit where he talks about 3 a.m. Yeah. The soul's midnight. Yeah. It's really, it really sets a tone. Yeah. So I hope you've uh, enjoyed us yakking about it. And uh, enough for some of you to go in uh, and check it out if you haven't seen it already. Or give it a second look. Um, all right, folks, if you have your own uh, strong opinions about Salem's Lot, get in touch with us. Boysandghouls at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter, Boys and Ghouls. Instagram, 
and Pinterest. Facebook, naturally. Come and give us a like on Facebook. Doesn't cost you a thing. And if you want to subscribe to us on iTunes, and if you want to leave us a comment on iTunes. Yeah, it's really helpful. Um, I just wanted to shout out a couple of people. Big Horror Fan on iTunes, that's the username. And this is a review from back in February, but thank you for that. So sweet. Another review from March from MD Patterson. I feel like that's someone who I follow on Instagram. It might be someone different, but I feel like I might know who that is in internet friendship world. And um, mm-hmm. thank you for that. And then most recently, back in August, we got a review from someone calling themselves Boris Caligari. And these are just... And if he doesn't know from horror, with a name like Boris Caligari... Then nobody does. But these are such sweet reviews, and we've had quite a few now of real, just people saying some really impossibly kind things. So we really... It means so much that you listen at all, but to take the time to write and say how much you like us and what you like about us is just icing on the cake. So thank you guys so much. We know you're out there, but we don't yet know the internet name you gave yourself. (laughs) So get in touch. Yeah. We, We love it every time. We do. And... Until we meet again, folks. Beware the moon. Beware. Beware.